Hi, I'm Bobby Bascom, and today on the Living on Earth podcast, we'll take a look at the phenomenon of owning big cats, including lions and tigers, right here in the United States. Also, a chat about a cat most of us are much more familiar with, the lion in the living room. But first, your support helps make it possible to bring you this podcast, so please contribute what you can. $5 or more makes a difference. You can donate right now at LOE.org. And thanks. Tiger King is a Netflix documentary series about the infamous tiger breeder Joe Exotic. The series has taken America by storm, with more than 34 million viewers within the first 10 days of its release. The show explores feuds between big cat owners and a murder-for-hire plot. The series is popular, but it's also been widely criticized for its lack of objectivity, setting big cat breeders and big cat sanctuaries on an equal plane. Still, the issue of private big cat ownership is very real. Investigative journalist Rachel Neuer hosts Cat People, a limited series podcast that explores big cat ownership in the United States. And she joins us now from Brooklyn, New York. Rachel, welcome to Living on Earth. Thanks so much for having me. So, Rachel, how many big cats are living in the United States right now, roughly? This is crazy, but we actually have no idea how many big cats are living here, you know, in backyards, truck stops, like even in people's like basements. But a few years ago, the Fish and Wildlife Service did estimate that there are more tigers in the U.S. than there remain in the wild. And researchers think there's about 4,000 tigers remaining in the wild around the world. So, yeah, there's probably more than 4,000 tigers here in the country. Well, you have a great podcast called Cat People in which you profile a few people, a few um, big cat owners. Can you tell me about one of them? Um, how did they decide to own a, a big cat, a tiger, a bobcat? And, you know, what made them want to go down this road to begin with? Sure thing. So I kind of think about big cat owners as falling into one of three categories. The first category is people who just really love these animals. Like truly, they love them. Um, they often are interested in conserving the animals. They want to help the species. I met a woman, for example, named Deborah Pierce. She lives in South Carolina. And she just, you know, since she was a little girl, she loved lions. And finally, she talked her husband into getting a baby lion cub. And then shortly after, she also got a baby mountain lion to keep the lion company. And like right from the beginning, things just went terribly wrong for Deb. You know, like there was a landslide that took out her cages that she had built for these animals. She realized that she had underestimated how much it costs to feed them. Like as they grew, like they eventually ate over $5,000 of meat a year. Mm. Veterinary bills just like piled up. You know, we're talking over $10,000 a year on vet bills. Eventually, the stress contributed to Deb's husband leaving her and now she she can't travel, she can't move, she can't really do anything. Like she's almost like in a cage of her own making because of these animals. Mm -hmm. But the thing about Deb is, you know, she was motivated because she loves the animals, she wanted to be near them. Um, and people like her are also motivated by the desire to contribute to their conservation. They think, okay, these animals are endangered. So if I can have one, if I can make more and keep them safe, I'm helping the survival of the species. I mean, a lion in a cage in South Carolina isn't really serving its ecological purpose. So, I mean, what use is it to the species as a whole if these animals are in a cage far away from their natural habitat? 
It's really not. I mean, it's not useful at all for conservation, period. You know, I, I write a lot about poaching of wildlife in places like Southeast Asia, and the exotic pet trade is just a booming market around the world. And once that like lizard or whatever is snatched from the wild, it's dead, ecologically speaking. It's not playing any more role in its habitat. It's not perpetuating the species. And the same goes for all these excess big cats in the U.S. You know, they're just over here in their little bubble, not helping conservation whatsoever. Right. Well, that that makes perfect sense. You said there's three categories of people. What are the other two? So the other two are kind of um, think of the kind of person who would go out and buy a Ferrari to show off and to try to be special. It's people who want to stand out from their neighbors, who want something to kind of affirm their uniqueness and their coolness and toughness in the world. People will start calling themselves, you know, like, I'm the lion woman or I'm the tiger man. And that's what they become known for. And it's just, it's a way to assert themselves in the world. The last category of people are really the breeders and dealers. These are the Joe Exotics of the world, the people who are in this business for business to make money. What about um, animal welfare? I mean, how are these animals usually kept? Are, are they treated humanely, would you say, in the whole? Definitely not, unfortunately. This industry is built upon cruelty. So the reason why there are so many pet tigers in the U.S. is not necessarily because there's so many people who are dying to have a tiger. It's because of this cub petting phenomenon. Um, you know, you go to these roadside zoos, you take a selfie with a tiger, you pay like 100 bucks for 10 minutes to cuddle the cub, and then, you know, it's the next person's turn. So to produce all these cubs, you know, female tigers are just repeatedly speed bred. As soon as they have a litter of cubs, those cubs are taken away, often within, you know, an hour of their birth and bottle fed. The cubs themselves have a terrible life. They often have ringworms. They're malnourished. Sometimes they're drugged into submission, you know, so they won't be biting kids that are playing with them. Or they're just completely exhausted from being passed around all day long. So there's definitely an element of animal cruelty in the industry. What is the legality of owning these animals here? About two-thirds of states have laws banning big cat ownership. Then I think about a dozen have laws saying like, okay, well, you can have a big cat, you can have a tiger, whatever, under these certain conditions. And then there are four states that don't have any laws at all. So you can like get whatever you want. It might be harder to get a dog than a tiger. Well, that is, that's a crazy notion. What are those four states? Where, where can anybody just go get a, a bobcat, a tiger, a lion if you feel like it? Those four states are North Carolina, Wisconsin, Nevada, and Oklahoma. Wow. So really all over the country then. Yeah, exactly. I mean, hmm. yeah, it's, I don't know why you wouldn't have laws about this. I think people just haven't really thought about it in the past. And it's more recently become sort of like a state's rights issue and, you know, like individual citizens' rights issue. Like you can't take mm -hmm. away my guns. You can't take away my tigers kind of thing. Now, this is obviously a, a public safety concern. I want to play a clip from your podcast. Um, this is a 911 call from Ohio. Nine one one. Yes, this is Mrs. Kobjack on Kobjack Road, and we live next to Terry Thompson, and there's a bear and a lion out. There's a bear and a lion out? Yeah, right up behind us. What's your name? Kobjack. And it's behind your house? 
Pardon me? Is it behind your house? Is it behind your house? Yeah, it's up in, and they're chasing their Terry's t horses. Okay, I'll send it over. Thank you. Uh -huh. So what's happening here? So these are people that, you know, are seeing tigers running down the interstate and are worried and calling in for help. What happened? There was this exotic animal owner there named Terry Thompson. And um, Terry had been arrested for some kind of gun charge. And he actually told the judge, you know, if you put me in jail, the moment I get out, I'm going to release all my animals and blow my brains out. And they're like, ha ha, whatever, Terry. Put Terry in jail. When Terry got out of jail, he did exactly that. He opened the doors to most of his big cat's cages, and then he committed suicide. And police officers had this situation where they had to then hunt down and kill 18 tigers, 17 lions, and three mountain lions, plus a bunch of bears, wolves, and baboons running around Ohio. <sighs> so yeah, luckily no humans got hurt in that incident, but very easily someone could have gotten killed. I mean, Terry's place was near a school. It was near um, hotels. You can imagine. Yeah, for sure. That's obviously very, very dangerous. Yeah. Well, I mean, we are in this situation now, though. There's, you know, nobody really knows, but thousands certainly of these big cats across the country and relatively unregulated. People are getting in over their heads. It seems like a pretty big problem not many people have heard of. But at the end of the day, what should be done about it at this point, do you think? So I think what we really need is federal oversight of this issue. You know, we just need a law like it is or it isn't legal to have these things. And luckily, there is a very strong ongoing effort to get that into law. There's a bill right now. It's in the House and it's awaiting a vote, but it's called the Big Cat Public Safety Act. And what the Big Cat Public Safety Act would do is, first of all, it would ban all public contact with big cat species. So that means no more cub petting. So that automatically would cause the industry to dry up because people wouldn't have any incentive to breed these big cats anymore because there would be no more cub petting. Mm -hmm. And it would also slowly phase out big cat ownership. And how likely do you think that is to pass? Surprisingly, I think there's a really good chance because... You know, it's not just like this tree hugger, animal lover issue. For a lot of Republican lawmakers, it's a issue of public safety. So there's actually um, a national sheriff's organization that signed on to it. There's a former police officer who's really been championing it hard. And, you know, when he gets pushback from policymakers he visits in D.C. who say, you know, like, oh, well, I don't want to take away the rights of my constituents. He's like, oh, well, so you're not supporting police officers. You don't mm. want to protect police officers. And that usually gets a reaction. So it's really great because the bill does have bipartisan support. And I think it can pass. Rachel Neuer is an investigative journalist and host of the podcast Cat People. Rachel, thank you so much for, um, for sharing these stories with us. Thank you so much for having me and for your interest. To get the stories behind the stories on Living on Earth, as well as special updates, please sign up for the Living on Earth newsletter. Each week, you'll find out about upcoming events and get a look at show highlights and exclusive content. Just navigate to the Living on Earth website, LOE.org, and click on the newsletter link at the top of the page. That's LOE.org.
Plenty of people in the world really love cats, but of course, most of them are much smaller than the tigers and lions we've been talking about. Here in the U.S., house cats outnumber dogs three to one, which may seem a bit counterintuitive, considering that Fluffy doesn't really seem to give us the same unconditional adoration that we get from Fido. But Abigail Tucker says there's a reason why cats came to rule the roost, and she says they really do rule the roost. We didn't tame them, they tamed us. Back in 2016, she spoke with Living on Earth's Steve Kerwood about her book. Your book is called The Lion in the Living Room, How House Cats Tamed Us and Took Over the World, huh? That's right. So exactly how much of a success story is that of the modern house cat? It's really kind of a staggering success story because there's at least 600 million and some people think closer to a billion house cats on the planet today, which is a shocking number for an animal of any kind. It's especially shocking, though, because house cats are, of course, felines. And in nature, felines are relatively rare because they tend to sit atop whatever ecosystem they're in and they have these huge protein requirements that they have to satisfy. So they're actually rarer than other kinds of carnivores typically. And in the modern age, the feline family has been in a lot of trouble because basically they clash with people over meat. And so it's even more spectacular that house cats have been able to carve out a global spot for themselves when so many of their wild relatives from tigers to sand cats to pretty much any other member of the feline family have come on hard times in recent years because of their long-standing animosity with man, basically. So what's the secret of success for the house cat and the role of humans in that? Well, basically, house cats have been able to succeed by sidling up to humanity and harvesting our resources without giving us too much in return and also without compromising their feline forms in a way that would prevent them from surviving without us. Cats have undergone this very interesting and complicated process of domestication, but only to a degree. And they have changed the structure of their brain to get along with us better, but they haven't really changed their bodies that much. And they remain hunters as magnificent as tigers or lions or any other member of the wild feline clan. To accomplish this, how did house cats, you know, manipulate humans in their rise that they can be in such huge numbers, be in our cities and, you know, be in our houses or not? How did they do that? Well, basically, the story goes back about 10,000 years ago to the first permanent human settlements that popped up in the in the Middle East, in the Near East. And basically, in these settlements, humans began changing the environment in really profound ways. And they started making homes and ultimately planting crops and all the things that would doom many of their wild relatives. And they, they sort of, humans began just taking up more and more space. But rather than fighting with humans and having conflict with humans, cats, sort of lured by our trash, came closer and closer into our settlements and started changing themselves to get along with the times rather than struggling against humans, basically, as lions and other kinds of wild cats tend to do. Yeah, one of the things that's uh, well, a bit surprising in your book, Abby, is that you say that in our society, uh, we think of cats as you know great for going after vermin, mice, and rats. And yet, 
at the end of the day, where there are more cats, there seem to be more mice. There seem to be more rodents. What's going on? Cats aren't living up to this imputed bargain that I thought we had with them. Yes, it's really interesting. One of the things that's kind of fascinated me about learning about cat-human relations in a more formal way is all these stories that we kind of make up to make excuses for cats and to explain why we have these animals around. And of course, the classic story is that these animals are very important for vermin control. Scientists from Johns Hopkins have had this ongoing rodent ecology project going on for maybe 50 years, and they basically have been hanging out with the Baltimore's many rats and seeing how they live their lives in these alleyways and watching to see what impacts their ecology. And at one point in the 80s, one scientist who I met with decided to watch the effects of the Baltimore's many stray cats on these alleys. And he kind of charted it out and he found that cats do, in fact, live in alleyways with more rats. And sort of the cat excuse for that would be, oh, well, that's because they're bravely killing off these rats, which are so harmful to human health. But actually what he found was that cats and rats do not fight in these environments at all and that they're more or less peacefully sharing another resource, which is trash. So in other words, the uh, Hanna-Barbera cartoon series, Tom and Jerry, the cat Tom never catches the mouse. This is the reality, <laughs> yes, huh? Yes, that's exactly, that's exactly the reality. You make it sound like in some respects, cats are rats with fur that purr. <laughs> that's, that's really interesting. I mean, scientists do think of them as the pathway that they followed to come and live with us in our settlements, in our cities. Scientists do think of them almost more as animals like rats or pigeons that became affiliated with people without ever really coming under their control. Now, you know, one of the takeaways from your book is the sheer scope of the cat population, this big rise over the last few decades, and then the feral cat population across the globe. I think you're right that in the U.S. there's many wild or feral cats as house cats, and in Australia it's like six to one ratio of feral cats to house cats. So uh, what's the genetic difference between feral cats and house cats, or is this just strictly a matter of upbringing? Yeah, I mean, that's one of the really interesting things. We tend to classify these animals as different, very different in our minds and think of these stray cats as being wild or in some way different than our very pampered house pets. But actually, genetically, they're exactly the same animal. I talked to a scientist who studies, who's an expert in carnivores, and he was doing a study in Madagascar and studying a, a different kind of animal. And he began catching these cats in his traps. And they were so big and so fierce and so formidable that he actually ran genetic tests on them to ascertain that they were in fact just regular house cats that had been living in the Madagascar interior for, you know, maybe a couple of hundred years. But genetically, they're just the same kinds of cats as we have in our own homes, which is kind of spectacular. It's this idea that cats can, they're so incredibly adaptable that they can make a go of it in a studio apartment or patrol thousands of acres in the middle of the woods and do fine in either environment. Now, you say there are about a billion cats around the planet. How many birds do these cats kill in a given year? 
You know, right. So that would be a billion cats owned pets as well as strays. And the estimates that we get from federal scientists are that these cats kill billions of songbirds per year and also wreak havoc on small mammal populations. And they also kill plenty of amphibians and even insects. But it's also interesting just to think about where the food in your cat's canned food comes from as well. I mean, the fascinating thing Thing about cats and what makes them such unusual candidates for being a globally invasive species is that they're what's called hypercarnivores. So that means that more than 70% of their diet is meat. Cats basically eat meat and nothing else. So whether they're going out to your garden and hunting a chipmunk or eating something that they get in a can, which could be, you know, a wild sardine caught in a far-off ocean or a chicken raised in a farm somewhere, all of these things are meat and all of these things have an environmental impact. So in a way, I think it's a little limited to just think of, okay, well, my cat's inside, so it doesn't eat any wild animals. That's important and that's good, but it's not that your cat is existing on, you know, on air and water alone, you know, these animals eat things. And the fact that they do take a toll on the environment and on human resources is only makes it more interesting that we tolerate them and even encourage having huge numbers of them around. Looking ahead at how cats might evolve, what are the indications for what future house cats might look like, given the pace of evolution? Yeah, that's a really interesting question. So basically, one of the things that I learned when reporting this book is that so far, humanity has really had no intentional impact on the way that house cats look or behave. We've influenced them, certainly because they sort of came to be because of our settlements, but we never exerted any intentional control over these animals. And that continues today. So you'll see these animals, like I mentioned, the scientists who uh, discovered an unknown population of marooned house cats in interior Madagascar, which is not a place where cats normally occur. Those had been deposited by sailors at some point in human history. And those animals were like really big, burly house cats with very kind of striped camouflage looking coats that were making a living for themselves in the wild. And so that's one direction that house cats can go and becoming almost more lion-like in the way that they look and act if they are reverting to a more wild environment. At the same time, though, that's not really the evolutionary pressure that's on cats right now. Basically, humans are just becoming a bigger and bigger global force. And really where the pay dirt is, is still in our settlements and living closely with us. And that set of factors does not favor the cats that are big and strong and burly and good at fighting. It actually favors tame cats and meek cats that are able to get into our settlements and live in high density and not fight so much, but have as many babies and eat as much food as they possibly can. And so that's the cat that the 21st century belongs to. While cats can still hack it in the wilderness, the human settlements are really kind of where the future is at. And I think the only way that we 
as humans have really collectively influenced the feline phenotype, as far as I can tell, is by how fat cats have become as a population, not just our house pets, which are frequently in a morbidly obese state, but even stray cats and other animals that live in our settlements are really growing larger in a way that doesn't have to do with muscles necessary, but is more just kind of chubbiness. Mm-hmm. Our civilization promotes the fat cat, huh? Yeah, it really does. Not just limited to felines, I gather. <laughs> hey, um, on a more personal note, Abby, how did the process of writing The Lion in the Living Room change how you feel towards cats? Well, that's an interesting question. I had always been a cat person and I grew up with cats and my mom grew up with cats and it's just been kind of a familial trait. And I still think of myself very much as a cat person. But I don't think that I necessarily gave cats credit for what amazing and formidable animals that they are, even though I write about animals in a professional way and have gone to different places around the world to write about different rarefied creatures in their native environment. I was just as guilty as the next person when it came to looking at my cats as little cute little fur babies and infantilizing them and pretending that they needed help from me. Now I understand that, you know, even though I'd been accustomed to traveling across the world looking for interesting animals, this is an interesting animal that has come to meet me in my living room. This creature is a creature of conquest and a creature that is a global survivor and is sort of an example of how amazing nature is. And I think that in a way, you know, that's a lot more kind of stimulating and interesting than thinking of my cat as just being a kind of slow-witted furry human, which is how I used to think about them. Mm, They're not so slow-witted, are they? They're really not. (laughs) Abigail Tucker's book is called The Lion in the Living Room, How House Cats Tamed Us and Took Over the World. She spoke with Living Honors, Steve Kerwood. Living on Earth is produced by the World Media Foundation. Our crew includes Naomi Ehrenberg, Paloma Beltran, Thurston Briscoe, Jay Feinstein, Jenny Doring, Marilyn Hajiomari, Candace C. Wingji, Don Lyman, Isaac Merson, Ainsley O'Neill, Jake Rigo, and Yolanda Omari. Tom Tiger engineered our show. Allison Learish-Dean composed our themes. You can hear us anytime at LOE.org, Apple Podcasts, and Google Podcasts, and like us, please, on our Facebook page, Living on Earth. We tweet from at Living on Earth, and find us on Instagram at Living on Earth Radio. Steve Kerwood is our executive producer. I'm Bobby Bascom. Thanks for listening. Support for Living on Earth comes from Sailors for the Sea and Oceana, helping boaters race clean, sail green, and protect the seas they love. More information at sailorsforthesea.org.